Kokoki, Naganago Mekochis Chistakomaki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Uh, Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda of the Wesley Chiniki Bears Paw Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. We acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot. I was born in Calgary, or in Blackfoot Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, another English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Nines Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am a daughter of the American or the um, American Revolution and Mayflower while having an Indian Act and Post status card. My I acknowledge my Dene lineage and I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people, in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area called Clinchotine Indehe in Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as the guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest, humblest apologies to Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share my journey down the red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today, I want to talk the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310 and it's toll free, open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week and if you go to hopeforwellness.ca uh, you can actually do some texting too. Uh, Non-Indigenous, there are distress, distress center lines in your area. For my Patreon account, um, you just go to Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for already showing your support to our show. If you value listening and can to afford, to afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel. I would love to have you subscribe for podcasts. We are on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I have to give a shout out to my super loyal donors, Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diana, uh, Jana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Marisa, Melissa, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Sharon, Vanessa, Tiffany, and Veronica. So with that, I have a wonderful guest back, back for a second time. Woohoo! That means I didn't scare you off, Natalie. I'm so glad you're here. I'm also grateful I'm here. Well, um, it's been too long. Now, who is that on your lap? And I think we're all going to have to see that a little better. Oh. One of my cats. His name is Angel. He's a two-legged cat from Spain. 
He's a two-legged, what? Can we have a better look at Angel? Yeah, he misses his back legs. <laughs> Aww, what a special kitty. Yeah. Aww, well, what a pleasure to meet uh, Angel, too. Thanks, Natalie. <laughs> um, shall I say a little bit about myself? I'd love that. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. My name is Natalie Jovanich. Um, I'm a counselor here in Calgary. Um, I'm German-Croatian. I lived in Spain before I came to Vancouver and then later on my journey brought me to Calgary. I use they them pronouns, I'm non-binary. And I guess I have a certain profound passion for anti-racism work and social justice. Yeah. And this is probably why I'm here. Which is exactly, well, I'm not going to lie, the first time you were on my show, it was incredibly helpful to have you on my show to talk about um, basically white privilege. Um, I really think it's an important conversation, and as much as I want to discuss it, I know white people don't like Michelle Robinson, a Dene woman, talking about white privilege. And it's a little more digestible for some reason when white people talk about white privilege. So, and you don't have just a, a lens for that, but like anti-oppressive lens in general, along with anti-racism. So I've always, um, especially our first podcast, I found it very validating that other people who aren't white or, or who aren't me see it because sometimes I feel really alone. And I know you, you've been talking about that very isolating feeling. So I, you know, definitely want to support you as well, because you are one of my favorite people on the planet. And um, yeah, I want to be your friend too. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think to continue with this discussion about my privilege, um, I honestly, over the last couple of months, I sat down with myself very much, especially what happened in US. And on the other hand, I'm also aware it's not better here in Canada. Like this, it's the same dynamic. And also it's not only black people, it's indigenous people, it's other racialized people. And the people close to me here in Calgary or in Canada are either black or people of color or indigenous. So I get this point of view and I hear the pain. And I'm also very aware that even if I'm aware of my privilege and I take action and I stand up, I'm also very aware about how often I said something, but I couldn't even create a dialogue. Like I sometimes would hope to have more dialogue with white people to understand their conditioning, because I guess I'm also aware my conditioning might, might be very different. Mm. And the thing for me is always like, when I came here, how can I take care of my white privilege and also how can I be here in Canada in a healthy way while also being in the role of an oppressor against Indigenous people. And it's honestly, I know that there is no easy way out. I know it's a complicated journey and I also know there's maybe no easy answer to it. Um, I think for me it's always about learning and listening to my friends. Like if I listen to you, I need to be influenced by you. I cannot just listen to you and then let it go. I need to really listen to you, be influenced by you and think about how does what I learned influence my behavior, influence my action. And I know in, in, in my counseling, I'm far more aware of racism and I'm thinking about like, how can I bring all what I've learned into, for example, groups. Like I cannot promise an indigenous or black person a safe space. I can promise a place where you know, where I address racism when it might happen. 
but I think it's more like really in-depth thinking about these dynamics and thinking about how can we use it at work. And also for me, it's this kind of thing, it's a work that will never end. It's just like, I think we are starting, but there are still, the language of white people is sometimes so different than the language of black people or indigenous people. And then I'm wondering how can we make a, a, a bridge? Like how can we build bridges and how can we have these complicated conversations? Yeah, I'm beginning to believe how as well. Um, yeah, as you know, you've been a part of my book club um, and that's up on YouTube for those who are interested. Um, and our last one was Hope Matters by Lee Miracle. And there's a few really great poems in here of like, you know, revolutionary um, belief systems and that. And, and, um, and that I found really good, but the conversation really was all about Black Lives Matter. Um, one of our um, main people that joined Vanessa, she actually did the whole Cochrane Black Lives Matter rally. So we talked a lot about that and decompressed that. And it was interesting because um, I don't know if you were at the book club where her daughter came and her daughter told her story about her interaction with the police in school. And um, it was it was awful. But at the Black Lives Matter rally, she said her whole speech and she told the story. And then after that, uh, Vanessa spoke about how there was a, a neighbor that had a People's Party sign on their lawn. And prior to that moment, um, her daughter and their daughter used to play together. But after that moment, uh, Vanessa didn't feel safe anymore being, um, you know, neighbors. And she said at the rally, I had to make the choice. Do I, do I stay? Do we get up and leave? Do we leave this place because it's um, not safe for my daughter? It's not safe for me. It turns out that those uh, neighbors were in the rally and they um, wrote her a long letter basically saying, we are really sorry. We did not know that sign symbolized so much hate and made you feel unsafe and so much so that you contemplated moving. And, um, you know, so I know, like, having these conversations are really hard. And it was really brave of Vanessa and her daughter to be, you know, strong enough to tell that story. And I was really shocked that their neighbors heard it, like, and heard it, obviously, I read the letter. And, um, you know, that's for Vanessa to decide to share if and when she's ready. But it was very clear that they were not just sorry, but empathetic and apologetic and it, it did change the course of that dialogue and that neighbor and her now are you know friends again and that's like <laughs> that's it's so funny because the mainstream media especially love to tell bullshit you know white supremacy um, stories and that's such a good one to tell and yet I don't know if they'll tell it because it's still I guess maybe too radical for them <laughs> I don't know, but at the end of the day, it, it, it is showing that there is an opportunity for dialogue. It's not the way I, I wish it was, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I've lost a couple of friends this week alone, um, childhood friends, childhood, um, you know, one, one, well, both of them I would have considered family, but, um, you know, and I read that story of that black woman who literally was at a sleepover with all those white women and they they murdered her and I honestly just saw myself 
at my friend's sleepover and thought, you know, how close could I have been to this little mob of, you know, white women killing me? How close? You know, because white supremacy lets them, lets them get away with it, especially if you're an indigenous woman. Yeah, like this is a scary part and I, I often don't think, and I think maybe this is, I think the journey of taking care of white privilege means also connecting to emotions and really seeing the world of, you know, your, your shoes, a black person's shoes and how unsafe they feel in the world because the world isn't safe. And like my friend, when she shares, I hear her fear and I hear that she doesn't feel safe, that she is afraid of her son. I hear similar things from you. So for me, I really, it's hard to say, hey, I support Black Lives Matters because it's not enough. Like, like, you know what I mean? There would be so much more to be done. Of course I support it, but I'm also, in the end, it's about for white people take responsibility for white supremacy. Oh, I've shared an article. It was a really great article. It's really super long. It's like, I think it even said 16 minute read. It was written by a black person and it said, there's no such thing as a white ally. And mm -hmm. it said, warning, this is going to hurt. And, uh, and it talked about that. It talked about how uh, black people are not complicit in this system. White supremacy is murdering them. And there's no we in this <laughs> you know you those who are doing the murdering are the ones who benefit from the system those of us getting murdered are not at all complicit in this system at all and especially i think in the case of black folks in the states that were literally the ancestors of slavery like there's no there's no they're a part of the system it's always been you're a slave and now here are your offspring. And I mean, David Chappelle's um, speech, he talked about his grandfather being a slave. That's, it's that, that recent. And I think that um, a lot of people forget that. And that, of course, some systemic racism. I mean, it's not like black people have been allowed to be in white neighborhoods ever, really. Like, yeah, there's no technical segregation, but there's segregation. And we know it. And we see, you know, their schools are over-policed, um, but the white uh, schools aren't over-policed, just the black ones. Um, even here in Calgary, we have a red line that the you know, realtors use to determine your race depends on what part of the city they'll show you around in. And they, I remember our own realtor was not interested in showing us around where we live now. Um, I know that we were encouraged to not live where we live. And I, I just know where that comes from. It was the assumption I was white and the assumption my white husband would, uh, or white passing husband would, um, want to live in a white neighborhood you know like this is what i think in calgary when i first came here was very obvious is segregation and i think for many people when they use the word inclusion what they really talk about is segregation because like for me it's not enough that i you know see an indigenous person on the street or at the workplace it's more like inclusion for me means that I understand what's going on in their life, that I understand their experience of racism and that I do my part to unlearn and also to balance the power dynamics because I think also we need to talk more about the power dynamics of white supremacy because the complete culture, the complete societies, the foundation is white supremacy. 100%. And, 
it plays out everywhere. Like, for example, I did a research on the war on drugs and racial profiling, and it plays out in all the different areas. And I think for me, it's really changing my way of thinking. And like, if I do a research, I need to look at an experience of white people, but I also need to look at the experience of indigenous people and black people to just make it more inclusive. And I think this way, there is no denial. It is just so present in all the systems and in organizations and it goes so deep. And sometimes there is such a profound lack of unawareness. Like if I have a meeting where there are only white people, I'm kind of wondering why do I only see white people? So who is missing there? Why do the people miss? Why, you know, I have some friends who say, like, I wouldn't even talk about anymore about equity and inclusion because I'm so burned out by this topic and we are never heard and we never have any influence. So what I'm seeing is this huge need for a profound systemic change, but also really the critical self-reflection of me or of other white people to how do I contribute to the system? How do I buy into it? And like, yes, I would hope more people stand up and more people create awareness because I also know to which extent I never achieved anything with when I stood up and said something because it's also brushed off. Like I don't have the same repercussions like a black person or indigenous person, but it's more like, you know, it's ignored or more like brushed off. And there is a lot of, uh, there is just, I don't fully get the denial, but I know it's there. And I would really hope that people have this wake up call. And I understand that people are happy to be Canadian, but I think there is a dark side of pride when I always go into I'm better than, because like, I don't think that any country can be compared to another country, but each country needs to do their own work to get become a better country. And like, I don't know, I'm looking at myself and I'm like, yes, I do things, but I'm also wondering how can I do more? And one thing was, okay, maybe I talk to you. This is one step more I can do. Like, you know, how can I create a dialogue? How can I do more? Because I don't think that right now we are in a good place. I think we are on the beginning stage to understanding and people have very different awarenesses around the depth of white supremacy in the society and many people only see the extreme and only look at others and then they think I'm better than the other person but the truth is really look at myself and really think about okay this is me what can I do how can I take a step more responsibility mm -hmm. well I am um, I'm trying to have perspective and um you know, I have a free podcast that I'm grateful for some donors that, that do, um, you know, give me a, a bit of money to help this keep going. Uh, and I also have a free book club and you've been a part of that. And I just find that what that does is help create that support network, really, of people who are like-minded and who see it. And um, during the latest couple of weeks have been really traumatic and, and trauma-inducing for a lot of people, for a lot of uh, black people, seeing these videos are the worst. As a native person, seeing some of these videos are the worst. I couldn't bring myself to even share one of those pictures of Chief Adam um, when I first seen it because it was it was really hard to see one of my leaders, who's been so prominent, talk about um, 
well, to see him beaten up at the bottom of some RCMP's boot. Um, you know, he he's well known to the RCMP. They are constantly harassing him. They just impounded his vehicle. He had just gotten it back when they were like, oh, you don't have uh, the right tags on there. Because, of course, they didn't tell them when they gave him back his vehicle. And, um, yeah, it's it's trauma-inducing to know that these videos are of people being murdered and people are watching them over and over and worse taking screenshots and uh being white supremacists and saying awful things about the person being murdered I, you gotta be some kind of dick um to spit on somebody's grave like that especially if you have absolutely no relation in any way shape or form especially canadians Half of the Canadians would probably don't even know an American, let alone George Floyd, let alone uh, the cop that, that killed him. So, you know, I just, I'm so disappointed with humanity. Um, how many people justified, uh, you know, Colton Bushy being murdered, these two Métis men being murdered, um, whether it's Robin Fiddler or uh, Josie Peltier, who were both murdered here in my neighborhood, uh, Colton Crowshoe. I have names, I have a list of names, Joey English, Jackie Crazy Bull. Why? Why are we here? Why are we here and Canadians still in denial? Why would that, um, you know, turban-wearing brown man get kicked out of the House of Commons when there are so many other examples of somebody being called a racist and not getting thrown out of uh, Parliament in any way, shape, or form? It's just, it's so infuriating to me that there's so many people, not just blind, but not even doing the work. And then there's someone like you who sees it. And, um, you know, you're pushing to try to get more people to do more. But all, like, all I can say is that, you know, your support network is at our, at our book club and on this podcast. Like, you're not alone. There's lots of I, us that see it. Yeah, I, I see. Yes, I know. And my hope is that more people now do the work because... It is just like, honestly, I cannot avoid being part of white supremacy by being here. So there's no way that I can deny it and that I can kind of justify it like, okay, you know, but I think it's just like acknowledging by being here, I'm part of the system. And then also we are in, interdependent, like I, like you and I, we can, we are here, we share this. So we, we need to make something out of this together. And I think the shocking part of what sometimes what I'm seeing is the profound dehumanization mm -hmm. and this lack of awareness, how much people dehumanize black people or indigenous people because of conditioning or because of biases, I don't know, but not being aware that, yeah, not valuing the other life. You know what I, I know. mean? Oh, you know, Kelly Frazier is that young Anuk who um, died over Christmas. And it broke my heart. And I, I was stalking her uh, Twitter. And one of the last things she retweeted was the name change for the Edmonton Eskimos. And, uh, you know, the Edmonton Eskimos, they just want to die on this hill that it's okay to use the word Eskimo because they did some outreach to Satu Dene, like myself, not actual Inuit. And they had like young Inuit voices like uh, Nathan Obed speaking out against um, Edmonton Eskimos. You know, and they they just absolutely have dug their heels in the sand over this. I can't imagine what kind of piece of shit you got to be to know that you are making money off of Edmonton Eskimo name, that logo, 
and another Anuk took their life asking for you to change your, your fucking name. What kind of piece of shit do you got to be to be profi- profiting off of that? You know? I have no to, to, I I've given up to try to understand because I don't think it's fully understandable. Um, what I, it's more really, but here again comes a systemic app. Like there's nobody stopping it. Nope. And it is so normalized to deny racism. Like, you know, if you tell me I do something and this is racist to you, I need to change my boundary. I cannot just have a discussion with you whether or not, like I want to have a healthy relationship with you. So this is a boundary. So I need to take care of it. And honestly, I think I know that I will make mistakes because it is my blind spot. The experience of a black person, the experience of an indigenous person is my blind spot. All I can do is learn and have these conversations and then apply it to my life. But it is so weird to see how abusive the language is in the way that racism is denied and this kind of brushing it off. And in the end, it is a toxic, it's a toxic environment. And I think everyone loses in a toxic environment. Everyone does. Um, and, you know, the whole point that I was going to bring up was that, that Eskimo pies are changing their name so that ice cream isn't racist. And that between that and Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's, like people are losing it, that they're losing a racist logo or a racist name. And yet, you know, Colin Kaepernick was completely, you know, kicked out of the NHL and, and basically banned for what peacefully trying to bring attention to this issue. It, it is shocking to me how white people will justify this away. Um, and worse, be an enabler to that continuous racism logo like Edmonton Eskimos and such. But um, again, there's been a, quite a shift. I see a whole bunch of new activists that are quite interested in continuing to do this work. Um, a lot of them are playing catch up, <laughs> not gonna lie. Um, you know, I bumped into this young one that was, uh, What's the best way to put it? She was shocked by a death threat. I'm like, oh, honey, we're all coming. <laughs> so um, trying to put out some information about how to handle those death, death threats and such from those who are so happy for white supremacy to continue. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of new activists that are interested. And in, um, I just finished up a blog with uh, Madam Premier because I know a lot of these young activists are going to be um, told, oh, you should consider running in the upcoming election by a bunch of jerk offs who will never donate, show up, you know, volunteer, endorse, anything like that. And I, so just trying to get out some of those messages out to them because uh, the new activists are going to be misused and pranced around by the in politician to show oh my god we so love and support black lives matter and indigenous lives see i have this new token with me under my arm to show how much of an ally i am in solidarity um yeah i pretty much want to punch justin trudeau in the face for taking a knee um i know a lot of liberals were so excited to see that but for me you know after what he did to Celine after what he did to Jody Wilson Rainbow after what I seen with Jill, Jane Philpont who was advocating for Indigenous people um, yeah it's it's beyond performative 
Like this is literally the man in all of Canada who has the opportunity to do real justice reform, uh, real change. And, you know, he's taking a knee. Is he protesting himself? Like that's stupid. He needs to be stepping up and saying, here are some actual actions. I agree. I think it's about action. And I honestly, I personally also don't like the word ally. I think it's more like saying, okay, I need to undermine white supremacy because this is mine. Like, you know, and this ally thing, I think it's very much abused because everyone can claim it, but it doesn't, it's often not used as an action term. It's more used as a, I claim it. I also yeah. think like awareness about my privilege is really not enough. Like even if I'm aware of it, the thing is, how do I take action with it? It's really about how can I translate this into my life and into action? Also, how can I find truth? Because like many of the wordings are so whitewashed or used in this sense that it still buys into the power dynamics of white supremacy. Like if a white organization says ally, and they don't undermine the power structures they are part of, they are not really an ally. I was saying to folks that this is a lot like the pinkwashing that the LGBTQ2 plus community gets, where it's like we're seeing that like blackwashing, brownwashing, redwashing right now, where you're seeing nonprofits, you're seeing, um, you know, government uh, bodies and such say, oh, we are totally in solidarity with Black Lives Matter right now and Indigenous lives. And it's like, how? You don't have a single person on your board. You don't have a single person that you listen to. You don't, you know, uh, give equal rights and equal wages. Like there's so many issues with this performative, you know, whitewashing of this whole activism right now. And, uh, and, and yeah, I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of going around and I don't know if I shared it. I don't even think I did, but it was basically white women talking about racism, but they, they said, this is not a place that you can talk about white privilege. We don't accept that terminology. Uh, we don't accept a lot of, like basically they were making a group just for them to continue and support racism while claiming to be like white women for Black Lives Matter. They were just too afraid of like real words that describe, um, you know, racial battle fatigue and, and such that we experience murdering us, you know, like just right over their head. But I have been talking about defunding the police. Um, I put out a template letter along with some other folks that, uh, you know, to try to encourage people to write the city and, you know, we'll see how that goes. Sounds good. Like for me, honestly, um, if I look at an organization that is based on white, a white organization, for me, it's more like commit to unlearn, anti, do the anti-racism training, but also commit to the process. Because honestly, it will be a more than year-long process to completely dismantle white supremacy. And maybe we will not even finish it in my lifetime. You know what I mean? It's like, it's easy to do a training about inclusion, but if you're later on not willing to do the work and looking at your biases, looking at the stereotypes that are so deeply ingrained everywhere and your behavior, it's meaningless. Like, it's easy to say for an organization, but it's often so superficial. Oh, yes. And like, how can we create organizations that are open to talk about racism? How can we, you know, because this is where we could start to un create understanding and to see how it turns out. How can we learn healthier behavior than white fragility? Because in the end, these are just 
very toxic relationship behaviors. So as long as we deny it and we don't talk about it and it doesn't work out. And it is, it's so like, I see how deep it goes. Do I know everything? No, not at all. But at least like, it's really taking it like an onion step by step, but not being on the superficial level because it's just a very ingrained um, dynamic. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I don't like to claim labels because I think it's so easy to claim a label, but in the end you don't do anything to change. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, it requires a lot of self-reflection and it requires a lot of personal work and, it also requires, like for me, it requires a lot of grief because there is a lot of grief in accepting reality and accepting it's not as it should be and yeah. then move on. Agreed. Um, you know, speaking of self-reflection, and I shared that um, <laughs> I did another podcast today with the fellow who started a RCMP petition, and I shared with him that... Um, I've been doing some self-reflection, uh, the Cochrane rally, especially it, we had uh, a speaker and then we had the interpreter. And then if you watch my videos, you'll see at first I was just with the speaker. And then at a certain point I said, why are you not including the interpreter? And that was a moment of reflection of, you know, as much as I, you know, walk this, this road and I, I talk this talk, what am I walking? And it, it was kind of that moment where it's like, you know, you, you are being ableist by not including what is right there. And that is that inclusion of the interpreter. And when I was listening to David Chappelle's latest um, uh, release, you know, 10 years ago, I was the person who said, people like David Chappelle are racist because they use the N word and they're wrong to use it. And my husband pointed out, you learn that out from Oprah. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he talked about um, Oprah doing an episode where he had, where she had another man on there and they were discussing that word and how he talked about how it was perfectly okay for um, that word to be said because, and she was like, we should never utter that word ever. And um, I know for me, like Oprah was, the only black woman I would really listen to, right? So um, I'm, I'm sure I internalized that, not understanding oppression dynamics and not understanding that bigger picture. And um, I think it's an example where if I did that as a native woman who's experienced racism my entire life, unable to really name it as racism for most of my life, um, how many average Canadians are not doing that self-reflection that you're um, promoting and that you're you're absolutely right and um, you know like so we're I, I watched this David Chappelle thing and because I've been doing anti-racism work for 10 years it literally is the first time I've watched David Chappelle with no um, I'm judging you filter literally and so I was listening I went through some of his older ones and it's the same David Chappelle David Chappelle has not changed in you know the 30 years I've been exposed to him but I've changed and especially in the last 10 years. And, um, you know, I've been raised in this white supremacist anti-black propaganda and media. And it took me a native woman in like 43 years to really start to understand how biased I am with my own lens. 
how that is a lifelong journey of reflection. And I just, I'm hoping that you feel like what you're saying is um, being validated with what I'm saying because it, it is. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, like honestly, I think no matter where we come from, it is like to overcome cultural conditioning. It is a constant journey of self-reflection. Being part of a multicultural complex society as Canada is a constant journey of self-reflection. Who do I exclude? Who do I not, like who do I include? Who do I listen to? Who do I not listen to? How can I become more open to those people I usually don't listen to? And like, there is a complexity in it. And, and like for me, right now, I'm in the process to think, how can I build bridges? Like, because I know that I probably have a pretty radical view about anti-racism that many people may not understand. So I'm more like, how can I create dialogues and create bridges um, that we can all move forward? Because, yeah, ideas is how, how about only white people together talking about white supremacy? Maybe it's more comfortable in this context than elsewhere but on the other hand i need to acknowledge i think being part of the society means for me to be uncomfortable because if i'm not uncomfortable i don't grow right and it is true um there are a lot of uh, uncomfortable moments that i'm having that I, it, it is of self-reflection and it's hard to encapsulate it all but at the end of the day um a lot of my journey has been with internalized racism that struggle of realizing that like you were talking about the actual culture um, and on deprogramming and uh, what I call decolonizing that thinking, there are moments that I just can't believe for a moment that I, um, you know, fell into that trap of believing that I was somehow lesser than solely based off of this stupid cultural programming that we have. So I, uh, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me too. And, um, you know, I'm grateful to have people who see it and who can name it. As toxic which you have which I appreciate yeah like I think yeah I think it's really looking out there hearing to the different stories like since I'm new in the country I think sometimes maybe it was easier because I heard different stories like I was not only shaped by one world like so I noticed some difference about how white people speak how indigenous people speak how black people speak like it was more like and then finding myself in all of this and thinking about how can I make sense out of this? And where is maybe a place for me that is also good for me? Because as you said, some experiences can be really painful and really like, oh my, oh my God, we have ended up in like, you know what I mean? It's, I think it's a journey about self-care, but then also finding the courage again and go outside and do the things that need to be done. Mm -hmm. But always also, I think you need a lot of self-care if you are, on a journey where you want to promote social change. On the other hand, I think there are so many beautiful tools out there to promote social change. And I, for example, decolonization, everyone has this responsibility. And like in Europe, people don't talk a lot about colonization, but when I came here, I also needed to think about how am I influenced by colonization, like being here, but also you know, only because nobody talks about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It's not like, I guess in the countries I lived in in Europe, it's not that pre prevalent, but like here I really learned socially so much about the context, how the world functions. It's yeah, it's true. 
I can't imagine that Europe likes to talk too much about their history of basically ruining the world with their colonization, because if it wasn't Britain, it was uh, French or Spain that basically wrecked the world. And um, really, and when I talk about the United Nations rights of Indigenous people through UNDRIP, I mean, I'm literally talking about that, whether you're from Colombia or whether you're from Africa, you know, <laughs> colonizers wrecked the world. They took um, black people from Africa, excuse me, and forced them to be slaves. Um, you know, they they displace and marginalize indigenous people everywhere, whether it's Filipino, wherever in the world, it's everybody is uh, negatively impacted by Europe's uh, mm -hmm. colonization. And some of us weren't even lucky enough to survive it. Mm -hmm. And that's the ghosts of those ancestors is I think what helps me find the right words to talk about this and say, look, I'm here by a freaking, you know, chance in a million. When I think about what my, uh, my grand, my great grandmother, she died from a lack of healthcare and my, how my granny lived, I'll, she was sick with the same thing at 18 months old. And, um, my great grandfather was forced to give my granny to an Indian residential school and how she lived from 18 months old to the year of 18, like, I have no idea. And of course, you know, my mother was a product of rape. Um, it's just so common for non-Indigenous to rape Indigenous women. And uh, that's just reality. That's just reality. And I, the fact is the violence is in every generation that my family has faced. I don't understand sometimes how I'm even here to have this conversation with you. And that's why I think the gravity of, you know, honoring my ancestors is something I try to do at the end of every one of my episodes, because if I don't, like, I'm not acknowledging the very chance that my voice is even being heard right now, because I'm, I'm not meant to be here. And the Indian Act is designed so that I'm not supposed to be a proud Indigenous person, um, you know, and it's a barrier for my daughter to get her status at this point. Like, it only because of sexism and racism embedded in the Canadian constitution and everybody's a-okay hunky-dory with this um bill one I mean the fact bill one is just like federally when he was with Harper and they purposely targeted minorities now they're doing it provincially and of course that's why I ran and of course none of those people were listening to me then and uh you know <laughs> So I just felt so helpless to have a podcast. And, um, you know, that's the reality. Like, people's racism, they were not ready to hear a second-generation energy Indian talking about politics. That's just reality. I wish they were. I wish they were ready. But they're not. And um, now they're telling other new activists that they should run, knowing full well they're full of shit. And they're not going to do anything but hurt those people and they will run and become dischanted with the system because this is the way it is. Because when we work really hard and we get Jody Wilson Rainbow in as justice minister, then we can't even have real change. <laughs> Sucks. Like for me, I honestly, and I, I have one conversation with a black friend and it wasn't one moment when I felt so helpless with the system. And then she said to me, well, maybe the difference you can make is in your one-to-one -one relationship. And like, sometimes I really need to break it down. I can only be the witness to the pain, the pain, whether it's colonization, whether it's slavery, 
I can witness it and I can feel it and I can be there, but system, I can stand up and say something and often I just need to make a choice. You know, how can I be in integrity and how can I still protect my own integrity and not buy into something which I don't want to support. I know. So, you know how many times I've asked Jesus to go into my heart so that I could try to fit in? This <laughs> isn't happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just always like, I think my, whatever is up there, I don't know, my spiritual beliefs are rather vague. But I'm like, always like kind of praying, hey, help me to find a way through this. I don't really know how right now. It feels kind of stuck, but please help me. No kidding. You know, I'm really excited. Katie Lang followed me today on my Twitter account. Um, these are the small wins I have. Uh, she was one of those people that have been really influential in my journey, though, because, uh, you know, I was a small town, Alberta, and I had no idea of anything. Really sheltered life well before the internet ever. And um, I didn't even know what a vegetarian was when she came out as a lesbian. And that's, you know, that's my reality. So um, she's been really influential in my life, whether or not she knows it, just because she was uh, that, you know, strong Albertan that was willing to speak out. But, you know, she is a BB. She is half Indigenous. And I don't think I've ever heard her really address that. So um, my journey down the red road, I don't know what her journey down the red road has ever been like but um you know i i just have uh i just try to find those small people that are in my world that i can like feel okay one other one other person gets it in my life you know and just try to get rid of all of the ones that don't i agree like i think for me it's a little bit thinking about not in my private life but more like in a more social context to take and for what I believe in mm-hmm. and I got now very I don't speak so much about addressing racism anymore I just speak about addressing white supremacy because the problem is white supremacy in its core and like having a language that keeps a problem to where it belongs and not imposing it on those who are victimized by it and who experience it every day and yeah I think it's about the things we can do and I really hope to find more people who are willing to have these conversations. And also, I think we can only liberate ourselves if we have these conversations. Like we, in a very different context, like if I wouldn't have the conversation with you or with my black or indigenous friends, I wouldn't have learned so much about the last years. Mm-hmm. And I, like on one extent I can learn on myself, but I think on the other extent, it's really learning from them. And I think deep in my heart, I still hold the vision, you know, the medicine wheel with the different races, where they are all balanced. Mm -hmm. This is for me the kind of vision I have in my heart for how I would love the world to be and how I would love to go to. And I'm very aware we are not there. Yeah, we are not. And I'm also, yeah, some people are more willing to get there than others. (laughs) It's true, I know. there's been a huge shift though in the last couple of weeks and and I'm I'm infuriated that it took so many black bodies to die in order for people to finally have had enough. I mean, in my lifetime we were talking about Rodney King. In my lifetime, you know, um when the NWA came out, um that was not stuff we were 
ready to listen to, but they were talking about police brutality then, you know, and we weren't listening. We just weren't as a society doing enough to really change that white supremacy that you're, you've so like adequately encapsulate because, or encapsulate because, um, you know, ultimately it is white supremacy. That's the problem. It's not the anti-blackness. It's not the anti-indigenous bias. It's the actual white supremacy. And um, even saying the term white is so offensive to the average Canadian and American, yet they have no problem calling me Indian, Black, um, Aboriginal, whatever name they want to give me, they'll call it to me. But I can't call them white. How does that work? I think because a complete society is based on white in the center or white on top of the pyramid, and then, you know, the rest is the other box. Like the language is always, it's the other box. It's racialized people. And racefully, I give them a little bit of my time, but I'm not willing to look at myself and what I need to dismantle within myself. Yeah. And I think there are, I don't know, it seems like it's always looking for the solution outside instead of reflecting on oneself. And I, I get to some extent, it's uncomfortable to assume the role of the person who commits violence because I think I'm usually more on the end of receiving violence in all my life story. On the other hand, I think, you know, I need to give to other people what I would like to receive. Yeah. And all my life has been about dismantling abuse of power and white supremacy is abuse of power to the extreme by putting, you know, white people on top or center everything around white people. And the labeling is also, it's abuse of power because in the end it's about what, what name do you want to have instead of, you know, labeling you somehow from the outside world. Yeah. I would also need to ask you what support do you need instead of defining myself what support you might need. Like, you understand what's going on for you. I don't get that. I need to talk to you to get that. Yeah. Well, you know, at the end of every one of my podcasts, I talk about how folks can, you know, be pushing politicians on uh, key reports and key inquiries. And um, and that's the whole reason why I ran both uh, municipally and, and provincially was that, you know, it's really clear what needs to happen, what needs to change. And, um, you know, when I shared the defunding police, I was surprised how few people were interested in having that conversation here in Calgary. Yet the police chief, he's all like on on the radio talking about how systemically when you call 911 they ask you do you need police fire or ambulance and he was saying well what if we gave them a fourth option and it was like mental health services how many how many things would go there instead i would love that because honestly because like i do suicide prevention workshops and i'm very about where about black people indigenous people have so much like don't like the police and i think for me it is so dehumanizing if the police takes care of somebody who is suicidal and there's such a huge on top risk for being traumatized and i would so much love to see a change in this process and to make it more human because it is a mental health crisis it is not a crime that you're committing in that moment and i also Sometimes I would love the discussion, who's the most vulnerable in this moment, the person who is suicidal. And like, I know for myself, like if I know somebody is black and I, even if I have 
like I have the need to protect my clients, yes, but I, I need to be mindful about the systemic racism that goes on and how can I protect them in a way that it's still not completely traumatizing for them. Well, and as in, did, like, we have so many examples on welfare checks and the police just end up murdering them. So then what's the difference? Them committing suicide themselves or them just getting murdered by a cop? And it's just so unhealthy and unnecessary. And But we're at the point where we can't call the cops because if we call the cops, then we're going to get either beaten up, killed, or, you know, that you're going to witness that type of trauma. And right now we're, we're not, nobody's safe. Nobody's safe. Whether you're, you know, if you're a woman being raped, there's no justice. So there's no sense in continuing to put a whole bunch of money into a system that's obviously very broken. Uh, especially when we're defunding like teachers and nurses and mental health and giving it to the police instead of going the opposite where we give less to the police. Like I, I see Hawk's helicopter up in the sky doing nothing but burning fucking fuel, like nothing else. That's its job is to go up there and just burn fuel. How is that an acceptable amount of taxpayers money in any way, shape or form, you know, and yet, you, you're in conservative Calgary here. Everybody's okay with it as long as it stays over the Northeast. And that's not okay. It's not okay. And also if I look at the police and if I, like for me, it's a context with the war on drugs. There, like there's so much money spent to make the war. It is completely ineffective. It hasn't been effective. But then there is such a lack of resources to get appropriate support. And also the discussions are so superficial without... A systemic understanding like this is for me sometimes we need to understand how the system works before we can make right decisions so harm reduction has a place treatment has a place but the thing is what's going on for the person in the moment and how can we best support them and then how can we make a budget that is not focusing on penalization but more like hey how can we really not treat the symptom but treat the root cause yeah exactly and housing, housing, poverty, it's all interconnected, addiction, um, support, it's all interconnected, yet we seem to be really okay with the most marginalized and vulnerable people out being on the streets right now, uh, being victimized over and over by the police. Like the folks that are homeless tell me stories about which cops are good and which are bad. Um, we had a, uh, the massacre that happened out in uh, Halifax, when that happened, there was one woman police officer who was killed in that. And, uh, you know, we had a, a vigil for it. And it was in the middle of the COVID-19. So we, you know, had masks and we were going to social distance and such. And uh, it was a damn good thing that the Indigenous liaison brought the staff sergeant because all of the other cops showed up and they looked like they just wanted to kick the shit out of all of us Indigenous people. And thank God the staff sergeant and the indigenous liaison was there to basically say, no, this is all under control. Literally having a vigil to support one of the downed police officers. And those cops, they didn't stay. When they realized they couldn't kick the shit out of us, they were like, oh, well, what's the point of being here? And they took off. That's what happened. That's my reality. That's when we try to do good things and try to have vigils to honor those that have died. That's the type of stuff we get filled with. Um, Colton Crochet, when he died, uh, we had a vigil right in my neighborhood. The community association wouldn't open the, the door. 
the police showed up, surrounded us, Hawks helicopter in the sky the whole time we did a vigil for a boy that they wouldn't even bother looking for for three weeks, that they beat the crap out of over Canada Day. You know, that's my reality. That, that's yeah. the world I live in. I agree. And I, I think for me, it's so astonishing to hear that people, white people are still not aware of that. Because like, I am able to hear these stories. I'm here since five years and I'm able to find it. And, you know, I think it's, it's good that now more is more awareness. But on the other hand, why did this murder need to happen to create awareness? Because why did it need to go to such an extreme? Because the stories are out there that indigenous people don't feel safe around the police and black people don't feel safe around the police. So this is the inquiry. And oh. then the top one is the summary for the TRC. Like, this is not hidden. It's, it's public, it's available for everybody. And yet, like you're saying, why is this shocking to people? Why, are, why weren't they paying attention? Why weren't they reading those stories? Yeah, and why are they not listening? And like my hope really now is that more people wake up. Um, my fear is a little bit, you know, that it's just like this wave and then everything is forgotten again. I don't know what will happen. I just hope that we continue these conversations and con that people continue listen to stories because like, even online, you like even me as a counselor, I find the stories from black people who have been traumatized by white counselors because they weren't able to talk about racism or they were brushed off. Like every time I do a research to find stories and just see what people experience, I find them. So it's not, I don't even need to bother real people that much because there are people willing who have already shared. Yeah. And then I need to think about how can I integrate this and how can I create a safer space? And I know there is no perfection. It's just being realistic. I think the problem really is being realistic and seeing the world as it is. Mm -hmm. And then we can improve based on that. But I really hope that more people are not denying anymore and are starting to learn. Yeah, and read the stories like the, I read the indigenous missing and murdered indigenous women report and these stories are heartbreaking and they say so much about the system and yet people are still in denial of the issue i'm wondering why we're screaming defund the police like i literally did cultural training for you know the one district here and they're the ones who shot and murdered robin fiddler they're the ones who shot and murdered josephine peltier they're the ones who did it so how am I any safer? No, it doesn't matter how much, you know, cultural training we give them. They're not interested. They're not like, hearing it. Like, honestly, for me, whether it's AR training, cultural training, they're meaningless if I afterwards don't sit down with myself and do my own personal work. A hundred percent. And clearly none of them were, and none of them cared. And in fact, I had one who was Asian looking and he um, said to me, you know, basically a natives have to just pull up their bootstraps and they would be fine because his immigrant family was able to do it. So therefore we all should. This was after a year of training and a Green Party representative was there to high five him. So basically they just perpetuate the violence against me. Um, you know, my voice, my experience, the experience of all of the other indigenous people, they don't want to hear it. They just don't care. 
so it it's kind of like to me i've done i'm i'm kind of done with this idea of cultural competency cultural training um the calgary police they have one hour of indigenous training and you know damn well you can't undo you know decades of propaganda and bias and hate that the average canadian has been taught about indigenous you can't undo it in a in an hour and that's what's this happened this is what I mean, like for me, these trainings would only be useful if you really afterwards do a huge change process because you need to change the mind of people, the behavior of people, the structure in the system. You need to really dismantle how white supremacy plays out in all of those places. And a training in itself will not do this. And you need to hold people accountable. And the truth about change is you may lose some employees who are not willing to change. Like, if I'm not held accountable, why should I change? A hundred percent. And quite frankly, I know they keep them. Um, you know, through this Halifax shooting, I've learned that um, it sounds like the shooter himself was somebody who was getting paid by the uh, uh, RCMP to be some sort of informant. And that's why they were okay, despite his in extensive violent history with domestic abuse gave him a gun and was happy to arm him with police equipment and cars and and uh, do all of this and I I can't help but wonder all of the money if that would have been divested into domestic violence programs um, would we have had less people dead uh, from that one incident alone um, because again when you start talking about dismantling white supremacy it's the misogyny, patriarchy, all of it is encapsulated. It's and honestly, I don't know if people are ready for these conversations because um, one of the sidebar things we have going on right now is that, uh, you know, these white, well-meaning nonprofits put out an email to like 400 other nonprofits talking about Indigenous and Black um, domestic violence without consulting with a single one of those organizations. And uh, the stats they gave were awful. And that's what's circulating in Calgary right now. So these are the types of, like they, they just perpetuate um, bias, myths. They don't have anyone of color on any of these boards. Uh, they don't have anyone indigenous on any of these boards. Um, and even if they do, the chances are them being a 60 scoop person who's been trained to think white and act white are very high. You know, because we don't have conversations about um, white supremacy and that internalized um, oppression that happens and then undoing that, um, you know, again, with self-reflection. It's taken me a long time to get here, and I know people aren't doing that work. No, and I, I like in the our agencies I was in, I think there is not really any accountability and any willingness to change. And I also think in the end, the client knows best, you know what I mean? Like, as and also for the numbers, I really struggle with statistic if they are not explained in the context. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it doesn't make sense because it still perpetuates discrimination and all the other things. So I would sometimes really hope that there were more critical thinking in these areas about you know, how they look at the clients, the trust that the client knows best, because also domestic violence are complex dynamics. It is just not, 
there are so many factors, social factors, uh, trauma factors, there are so many factors, so there is no easy solution to get out. Like, I come from a background from domestic violence, and it took me a lot of time to do my own healing, mm -hmm. but also it really helped me to understand the complexity of it, and also that the journey is very individual. Oh, that's true, Faith, and we all do um, walk our own journey and reflect based off of that in different ways. And there's not really like a right or wrong way to do it. It's just doing it is different for everybody. And um, if you're indigenous and you're listening, um, look for mending broken hearts in your area. And uh, if you're in the Calgary area, uh, I got to find a place to run it. And I think I will here shortly, but especially like organizations could um, bring us in to talk about that. But I would hope that the organizations would do it too. Um, because that's the other problem. They will do it for their clients, but if they don't understand, you know, colonialism, intergenerational trauma, trauma-informed care, if they don't understand police violence, how are they even possibly serving people who are affected in that way? Like, and, and I just, I'm so annoyed with all of these nonprofits and organizations that just don't want to hear this. I think, I honestly think it's, I would hope that they had more understanding about the clients and that they would more think about client empowerment because I also think there is a certain abuse about, it's always profited them. It's not about really what's good for the client, but for my profit. Yep. And I think for me, the intention I have if I work with somebody is important. So if I come from a position, I'm better than you, I do damage to my client. Like I can support them on their healing journey, but it's still their journey and it's an individual journey. And especially because there is so much trauma, I think for trauma, you need to be aware of power and you need to be aware of your position of power. And I'm very aware that for some, like I fully understand if indigenous people don't want to work with me as a white person, because I need to acknowledge what my position is in society and the damage that has been done. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so grateful. I wish more people had that type of self-reflection and, and foresight to understand this, but I honestly don't feel average Joe Canadian has a concept of what oppression actually is. They assume we're all equal, and if a Black person uses the N-word, they're, they are racist, so therefore they just write them off as because they don't even question their anti-Blackness bias. They don't even question it. They don't understand oppression. They don't care to understand it. As far as they are concerned, their family has been paying, um, you know, mortgage to the Royal Bank for three generations. So therefore, it's their land. You know, it doesn't matter that it was stolen and that they just, you know, submit into this stupid banking system. <laughs> you know, um, it's completely changeable. We're in a moment of time where we could change all these things if people were willing to really do that. So, yeah. I agree. Like, I think now is a really good moment because it seems like there have been some cracks and there have been more thoughts about it. And I think the thing is, it really requires personal work. So if a person is not willing to do the personal work, it will be hard to get there. Agreed. My and it, I think it also requires emotion and not rationalizing it. Like mm -hmm. relationships and relationships, we build connections through emotions and through honesty and also sometimes admitting that it's really messy. Agreed. 
Um, I'm going to go through my um, ending here, but I invite you to chime in as we do it because um, I just think that as you say it, maybe you can say it in a way that people will hear it differently than if how I say it. I don't know. So feel free to chime in here. Um, Indigenous have been talking about the issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budgets with Gender Equity Plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay-straight alliances, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform and uh, violence prevention, and now the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting, our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. It should be understood by all parties or local politicians, community organizations, sports, etc. A uh, really great article that I said out loud in episode 62 that you can Google is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. Now, I agree, we kind of made fun of the term ally, and rightfully so, but for the average Canadian who's still so oblivious, maybe it'll help, I don't know. Um, I want to... Go ahead. I'll say one thing. The one thing I would ask from people is if they read the reports that they believe them and if it's really hard to believe them at least that they ask what if everything what was written there was you know a two percent true how would it change my life mm. really read it and personally I say believe it because I hear the pain very often the pain from racism and white supremacy but I think you know I guess there are so many mm, believes in it that make it hard to believe but you know maybe they can read it and believe it or at least see the truth in it to some extent yep no kidding um i want to continue by putting cultural safety into action to create more accountable places for indigenous people of color those with disabilities lgbtq2 plus to speak look at it as first aid only for marginalization you have to do something. And I think Natalie has so adequately said that throughout this entire podcast. Having good intentions is not enough. Take action to make change. Speak out against racism. Ask questions with those with more understanding. Find allies. Create a support system for yourself so that you can advocate for culturally safe approaches. I think that's what we try to do with the book club, you know, is create that safe space for us to talk about it. Um, two, take responsibility for your own learning. Read, reflect, ask questions, and do not expect this learning to come from marginalized people. I think we've been talking about that, like how many people read it with good intentions. Reflect on it. And like you said, even if it's only 2% true, are they doing that personal reflection to really say, yeah, this needs to change? 
Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions and biases. Question everything you've learned about marginalized people and take steps to actively disrupt the stereotypes. Um, commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and dis difficult task. And if you go to heretohelp.bc.ca, um, Indigenous people and what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it, that give, gives these guidelines. So if you need to print them off and you need to carry them around with you, do it. Um, internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized people experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. So when you see Métis and Indigenous arguing over something, that's only because of white supremacy. That's the root of it. When you see Indigenous people arguing with Indigenous people over what's racism, that's internalized racism and lateral violence. That again is internalized oppression. Um, RacialEquityTools.org has a lot of information about what is internalized racism. Uh, do's and don'ts for bystander interventions by the American Friends Service Committee. They have uh, do make your presence to a witness known if you're seeing public instances of racist, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, or any other oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment. Um, if possible, make the eye contact with the person being harassed. Ask them if they want the, to be supported. Uh, move yourself closer to that person if possible. You know, and you, you can just create a distance between the person being um, victimized and the person attacking. If it's safe to do so and the person consents, just film or record the incident. And I've seen cops de-escalate in a second the moment they know a camera is on them. Um, people are usually cowards when it comes to a camera and they will cool down. And it's a lot easier to delete something than it is to wish you had it on video. Um, take cues from the person being harassed. Is the person engaging with the harasser? Uh, do you maybe feel comfortable making suggestions like, do you want to walk over here with me? Do you want to move to another train car? Do you want them to leave you alone? Follow their lead. Notice if the person being harassed is already resisting in their own way and honor that, especially white folks. Don't tone police the person being harassed. Follow up with the individual being harassed after the incident is over and see if they need anything else. I can tell you personally, um, going through those moments, there's a fight, flight, or freeze that you kind of go through. And um, the most validating thing you can do if you're too afraid to intervene in any way is just give the person being attacked your card to validate this experience and, and just give them the opportunity to throw away your contact than to wish they had it. And then if you have it on video, just tell them, I have it on video, I'll send it to you. Here's my contact information. And then that way um, you're validating their experience. And it's embarrassing after these things happen, you go through a stage of um, you know, denial and shame and you don't wanna talk about it. So it might actually even be a week or two if people, before they um, contact you. So it might be in your best interest to take your little iPhone and make some notes and say this happened at such and such time and it was this person wearing a green hoodie who said this to a Muslim woman and just make quick notes. And it's a lot easier to delete that later than to wish you had it, you know, uh, keeping that video. Do what you have to do to be safe. Assess your surroundings. Are there others that you can pull into support? So if I was with my husband 
I would be encouraging him to hang out with me. If I was with Natalie, I'd be encouraging Natalie to hang out with me. Um, and working as a team is a good idea if possible, because even if it's just you and the person being harassed, you're still two against one, you know, so please use your privilege in a good way. Um, don't call the police. We've talked about it. You're seeing it live, live stream in the last three weeks. Why calling the police is actually um, a greater cause for danger for the person being harassed. Even welfare checks mean that sometimes they'll be murdered by police, by your tax paying money. Don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person being harassed to safety and not incite further violence from the attacker. And don't do nothing because silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. And if you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person. And again, give them your card, record this. Teach your kids about accountability in a, a positive way because people are learning this from somewhere. If you're experiencing emotional distress and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and hopeforwellness.ca is a text feature. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. As many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights, typical microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, those who are gatekeepers, some that survive off the status quo, and then there are other people who are so in their trauma that they stop people from doing the work and deplete personal resources. External and internal racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I needed this podcast as a boundary to be heard. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family roots. Stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I am a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to my husband Darcy for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child, and my support down my journey of the Red Road, he has witnessed decades of racism and sexism and to our child. We are blessed to learn from daily. We are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss this present day issue. And I hope that you can understand where I'm coming from. Again, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine. Christina, Crystal, Diana, Jana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Marisa, Melissa, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Sharon, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you did one donation or did many or had to quit for financial reasons, please know I appreciate your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. 
send in your comments, your questions. I now have a YouTube channel and would love to have you subscribe. For podcasts, we applied on Spotify and are on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to end by giving a side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish, or you, my beautiful cousin would say, you're a, you'd be in my dish. 